Good afternoon. It's Friday the 21st of May 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Um, well, yesterday, Patrick, yesterday was International Clinical Trials Day. We missed it, but that's what it was. Uh, so we... Uh, when faced with adversity, clinical researchers rise to the challenge, is what we're told. So this is a global holiday to celebrate clinical trials, right? Yes, it so, is. So if there's a clinical trial happening in your area, get involved. Donate your body for a clinical trial. It's a celebrating the sort of global guinea pig holiday, isn't it? Yes. In a sense. Yes, yes, indeed. It, it's Real guinea is. pigs. Really, Real guinea pigs. Well, look, yesterday was clinical trial day, so I thought today we would look at... Uh, the MHRA and how they respect clinical trials. Uh, and I'm going to say thank you for it. Well, you'll see in a second who it was that uh, put this up. But uh, the MHRA basically have admitted in a Freedom of Information request that they didn't read the clinical trial for the Pfizer vaccine when they give it its emergency approval. So this is the UK drug uh, regulations uh, agency. agency, right? Yes. And so you're talking about the foreign conducted COVID-19 vaccine trial. I'm talking that, about the combined phase one, phase two, phase three trials that uh, that the MHRA is relying upon uh, to give the emergency approval for the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, they didn't read it. It seems to be what they are saying. They've so admitted this. Let's have a look and see. Um, so here is the uh, uh, the freedom of, freedom of Information request. It's, it's on whatdotheyknow.com, Pfizer slash BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine exposure during pregnancy. Uh, and this uh, is from Nicholas uh, Ball. So uh, this is what it says, dear MHRA, in the clinical trial protocol for Pfizer-BioNTech study uh, from the short title, uh, with the short title of phase one, two, three study to evaluate safety, tolerability, immunogenicity, and eff efficacy of RNA vaccine candidates against COVID-19 in healthy individuals. Uh, and it has a uh, protocol number of C4591001, and that's very important, as you'll see in a second. And he makes some points and asks some questions. Uh, and so he asks what it understands, that's the M M MHRA, uh, with respect to the above protocol to mean where it states exposed to the study intervention by inhalation or skin contact. So he was uh, interested to understand how there was a possibility of, uh, you know, cross contamination, if we want to use that word, between somebody who's vaccinated and somebody who isn't potentially. So, uh, but anyway, this was what the MHRA respond. As the above trial was not conducted in the UK, the MHRA did not assess its contents and are therefore not in a position to answer specific questions relating to it. The MHRA did not assess its contents. I am struggling to find any other interpretation other than they didn't read it. So this, this trial, which was conducted in another country, is the basis for the emergency use authorization in the UK for this vaccine, correct? Well, that's, it's one of, the, one of the two trials, so let's have a look at this. Uh, this is the Public Assessment Report Authority, and thank you very much to Nicholas for, for uh, pointing me at this. Uh, Public Assessment Report Authorization for Temporary Supply COVID-19 mRNA Vaccine uh, for, this is the Pfizer one, uh, Pfizer Limited and BioNTech Manufacturing. GmbH. The following clinical studies were submitted with this application, uh, and there is C4591001 highlighted there. Uh, what they said is, or what we can say is that that uh, uh, study is cited 21 times in this document. Okay, cited 21 yes. times, and they haven't assessed its contents. This is what they are claiming. 
Um, and let's just give some exa examples. So clinical efficacy. The clinical efficacy is supported by the phase two, three. Uh, so in other words, phases two and three of the ongoing pivotal study, pivotal study, C4591001, a multi-center, multinational, randomized, placebo-controlled, observer-blind trial uh, to evaluate the safety, tolerability, and efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine in COVID-19 against COVID-19 in healthy individuals. Another example, the clinical safety, safety population and exposure. Clinical safety data were submitted from the phase two and phase three part of the study, C4591001. Non-serious adverse events were actively elicited uh, until the one month after dose two. Serious uh, adverse effect, effects were actively uh, elicited until six months after dose two. Uh, adverse effects and serious adverse effects will be collected as appropriate until 24 months after dose two. But again, we're citing that study in this document. Uh, and so uh, this is uh, just to remind you what they said. The MHRA did not assess its content. That is that clinical trial. And um, I just find this a really uh, staggering situation. So they're we seem to have an admission from the MHRA that they didn't actually assess the contents of the trial. They took it verbatim. Uh, they assumed that it was all okay, and they gave the temporary authorization for use of the Pfizer vaccine in this country. Hence, they're claiming they're not in a position to answer any specific questions about the trial. About the trial. Yes. I mean, this is unbelievable. Uh, there's a major disconnect going on here. I mean. It, it, that's how it seems. Yeah, so this and is the regulatory agency that's responsible for public safety, really. Yes. And, and, and how these drugs are being rolled out, and they haven't even looked at the actual contents uh, of the actual trial, which the emergency authorization is based on. Unbelievable. Uh, so we've written to the MHRA for clarification of this, uh, to find out what their position is. They hadn't responded by the time uh, we began this program unfortunately, but uh, that's normally how it goes. And of course, if we get any updates, uh, we will let you know. But in the meantime, uh, the government has made an announcement uh, because now, if you remember back to when Pfizer was first rolled out, it has to be kept at an extremely low temperature. Uh, but there were also very strict conditions about how it should be handled once it was taken out of that specialized freezer. Um, and uh, it was required to be used within five days. Um, it's the government has now decided that it's perfectly all right, or the MHRA rather has decided it's perfectly all right to keep it outside the freezer now for 31 days. Um, so new storage conditions for the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine that extend the length of time uh, the thawed vaccine can be stored in a normal fridge uh, from five days to 31 days have today been approved by the MHRA. Uh, so they're saying that uh, uh, when it was first approved, uh, by the regulator, it had to be stored at ultra low temperatures until use. Uh, the changes that extend the shelf life once thawed uh, are therefore expected to make storage easier and possible for a wider range of health facilities. Um, and uh, here's uh, Dr. June Rain, of course, the head of the uh, MHRA, saying we're pleased to confirm that having rigorously assessed the additional data submitted to us by the company, that's Pfizer, uh, we have now approved more flexible storage conditions for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. But they've just admitted that they didn't rigorously assess the Pfizer phase one, two, three trial. How can we take her word for it that they rigorously assessed the data that it's safe 
to store this vaccine outside of the freezer for 31 days instead of five days, so all went, of a sudden. It went from five to 31, that's yes. six times as long, right? Yes. So what happened? Has the vaccine evolved, uh, adapted? So it's kind of a living vaccine, it's adapted to longer temperatures. It, it's possibly a new variant or something. A, new, a, vari a it's, variant. It's like COVID, it's an intelligent vax. It, it must be, it must be. So I would like to also hear from the MHRA on that as well. And we haven't written to them about this particular issue yet, but we will do and we'll let you know what they say. So, but the, the, my question then, Patrick, is why uh, have they felt the need to extend this time? Uh, is it that they are taking vaccine out of the freezer? Mm -hmm. uh, it's with the intention of using it within a particular period of time because they've set up uh, a certain number of appointments for people to come and be vaccinated. And in fact, they're not managing to deliver the doses and they're having to throw Pfizer vaccine away. Is that what's going on here? They need it outside the freezer for a longer period of time. I don't know the answer to that. I'm just asking the question. I think it's probably, you're right. I think the priority is uh, they don't want to interrupt the rollout. They need to meet their targets. They need to meet their numbers. So this looks to me, Mike, like a workaround for a uh, physical, technical problem, uh, obstacle that's been put in their way. So, um, so let's move to Africa then, Patrick. And uh, well, apparently, Vaccine doses being burned? What's going on? Well, this is related to the previous story, which you just showed us, Mike. So this is what's happening in this particular country. Malawi has become the first African country to publicly burn thousands of COVID-19 vaccine doses. So health authorities have burned 19,000 plus, quote, expired doses from AstraZeneca uh, COVID-19 vaccine, saying that it will reassure the public that any vaccines that they do get are safe. So what they're doing is saying, we're, we're showing you that these have been expired in good faith. We're burning them in public uh, so that you don't think that you're getting doses that are out of date. But there's also some pushback in some of these countries uh, because of reports of AstraZeneca problems, blood clot risks, and things like that. There is what's called, quote, vaccine hesitancy, this term which we have chronicled uh, in such detail in previous programs. So um, in a way, it looks like, Mike, that story is also to cover uh, the very reality that there is skepticism with regards to A, the safety, and A, the, quote, efficacy of some of these vaccine projects, uh, uh, products, especially in light, especially in light of a lot of the adverse reactions and fatalities that have been reported specifically in countries like the UK, but also in the United States as well. Yes. Okay. Well, of course, uh, the government claims that uh, many, many people have now received uh, their first dose and increasingly their second dose uh, of the vaccine, but that's not enough. Boosters are coming. And there is a new project uh, in place, a new trial for people to join. Uh, thousands of volunteers are going to receive a booster COVID vaccine uh, in a new clinical trial, which is being launched today. Uh, the CovBoost study, and the website is on the uh, on the screen there if you want to have a look at it, is being led by University Hospital Southampton NHS Foundation Trust. It's backed by just under £20 million of government funding through the Vaccines Task Force, and it's going to trial seven vaccines and will be the first in the world to provide vital data on the impact of a third dose on patients' immune responses. Um, so it's going to give scientists from around the globe and the experts behind the UK's COVID-19 vaccination program a better idea of the impact of a booster dose uh, of each vaccine in protecting individuals from the virus. This is what they say. Uh, so as I say, 16 um, uh, sites across Europe that are supported by the NIHR. Um, and uh, 
Well, let's see who's which vaccines are involved. Uh, AstraZeneca, of course, Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax, uh, Valneva, jo uh, J Janssen and CureVac, uh, as well as a control group. Um, and the trial has apparently received ethics approval from the NHS Research Ethics Committee. So that's all right then, um, as well as approval from the MHRA. Um, so I wonder, did they read the uh, documentation that went with that one? Um, but what it's going to do is look at uh, these seven different COVID vaccines as potential boosters. The booster is going to be given uh, at least 10 to 12 weeks after a second dose. So once you've received the second dose, you then get the booster as part of this trial 10 to 12 weeks after that. Uh, and that's part of the ongoing vaccination program. Let's have a look and see what Matt Hancock had to say about it. We'll do everything we can to future-proof this country from pandemics and other threats to our health security. Uh, and the data from this world-first clinical trial will help shape the plans for our booster program later this year. Um, I hope that makes you feel a lot better, Patrick. They use the term future-proof. This is a military term and a tech term. This is what you use for like fighter aircrafts and computer systems, onboard guidance, or future proofing. So again, using this military terminology and language and applying it to humans, basically. Mm. So how do you future proof the public, Mike? What, stick them with how many different vaccines within a 12-month period? Is that supposedly future proofing the country against this uh, supposedly deadly pandemic that seems to be raging, we're told, uh, throughout every village and hamlet in the country? But yet, where is the evidence that there is this pandemic raging? That, that is a very good question. And well, we will be coming onto that specific question a little bit later in the program. So do stick around for that. But in the meantime, in order to uh, pump more fear and justification for uh, vaccine uh, uh, delivery, Patrick, uh, more surge testing, Indian variant, we're getting all the headlines. That's right. So the thing to be worried about now, we're told, uh, just as the government is about to uh, announce relaxing uh, the lockdown measures and getting things back to, quote, normal, the old normal, uh, we're, we're told the Indian variant is on the loose, Mike. Here we go. COVID, wider surge testing in Bedford due to Indian variant. And so this is in the area of Bedford, Bolton, Blackburn, where they suspect, they suspect, and we'll show you why they suspect there's an Indian variant. But I'm, I'm uh, bringing people's attention to the language, the word surge. This is used in military, again, troop surges. You remember that for Iraq. Now they're using this military terminology here. So that's the behavioral insights team at work. Let's take a look at this. Due to an increase in coronavirus cases linked to the Indian variant. Uh, linked to in what context? Somebody said or a, a rumor? Uh, have they got any actual evidence that uh, there's the Indian variant is running rampant through various communities? We looked long and hard, Mike, for evidence, and we still haven't found it. What we have found is claims that is linked to an alleged Indian variant. So you hear the hype, you see the headlines, every single newspaper, but where's the provenance of, you know, where's the empirical evidence of this Indian variant? Uh, are they taking live tissue culture samples from all these people they say, these all these different people they say have the Indian variant? Is that actually happening or is this being done in kind of an estimated fashion using the magic and wizardry of computer models? Which is it? Very good question. And I think it's probably the latter. Let's take a closer look here. Uh, and then just follow on for this, more language. Bedford's Labor MP, Mohammed Yassin, has confirmed that Bedford will be getting surge vaccinations as well as surge testing. So a surge of vaccinations, military language here alongside the surge testing. Now, what's interesting is that uh, surge testing 
puts a requirement on, ed, on every single person, every single adult in a particular community to go and be tested. Um, is this going to be the what's going to happen with uh, vaccinations as well? People will be required. Is this? Are we seeing the beginnings of compulsion here? Absolutely, we are. This is what they're doing. They're being especially aggressive within these uh, Asian communities as well, and South Asian communities here in these countries. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But just uh, to round this out, surge testing was deployed. This is another military term, deployed at two schools in the town earlier this week. So what are they doing when they're doing rapid surge testing, Mike? They're building data sets. They're, they're creating cases. They're building the numbers up. And then the epidemiologists, the Neil Ferguson's of the world, mm. these types of people will take that data, plug it into their Indian variant spreading models to, to calculate the R number, and they all get together and agree that, yes, the Indian variant is very prevalent in this area. We have all the evidence. Is it really evidence, though? This, no. This is the question. It doesn't no. look like it. So Matt Hancock had a press conference uh, recently. We'll look at a clip in a minute from that. Um, but uh, we'll look at that clip in a second. But look at this. The Indian variant will be dominant in the UK in the next few days. He's, this was from four days ago. Uh, so somehow they knew the crystal ball, Mike, was very clear on this. So with, rap, with the rapid spread of the more transmissible B1617.2 variant, that's the Indian variant, threatening to reverse moves to ease lockdown, the government's faced intense pressure to more fully explain the delay in adding India to the so-called red list of countries. Now just to clarify, B.1.617.2 is only one of three Indian variants. That is the, that is the most uh, variant one so far, so they claim. It's the, they're calling it the triple-headed mutant Yes. in some news reports. I kid you not. The triple-headed mutant, the Indian variant. It's the wildest, most exotic ever variant ever seen uh, in the world. So, But look at this, the so-called red list countries, Mike. Now take a look. So when you see that, here we go. Enter this man. Now for your controlled opposition talking point. So anytime you see Dominic Cummings now, they're trying to rehabilitate him back into the world of politics. So he's promised to play the role of controlled opposition. So Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's former chief advisor, joined the criticism on Monday, calling the UK's border policy a joke. So he's saying, tighten up the borders to protect us from the Indian variant. So this is Dominic Cummings' ticket back into mm. uh, mainstream politics. He's doing some of the dirty work here with the press mm. playing the role of controlled opposition. I just wanted to point that out yeah. to people. But let's, uh, let's listen to Matt Hancock. We have a clip, don't we, from this press conference? Yes. That means that our strategy is the right one, to carefully replace the restrictions on freedom with the protection from the vaccine. What it means is that it is even more important that people get vaccinated. As I've reported to the House of Commons, there are now 2,967 cases known of this variant in the UK. And we are determined to do all that we can to ensure this new variant doesn't put our recovery at risk. So we've acted fast to guard the gains that we've made together. We now have an incredibly sensitive biosecurity surveillance system here in the UK. And I'm going to set out a couple of new details about that in a moment. This surveillance system spotted the cases in Bolton and in Blackburn early. And through surge testing and increased vaccinations, 
We're throwing everything at it there. The weekly case rate in Bolton is now 283 per 100,000, and it's doubled in the last week. There are now 25 people in Bolton Hospital with COVID. The majority are unvaccinated. Nearly 90% have not yet had two vaccines. This shows the importance of getting vaccinated, not once, but twice. So when you get the call, get the jab. Almost 14,000 vaccines have been given in Blackburn and Bolton since Friday, and over 26,000 doses have been given in the last week, the highest weekly total in these areas. We've also surged testing and delivered 75,000 extra tests to these two areas. And we're using 12 testing sites and a 100 strong team going door to door. But these are not the only areas where we have a cause for concern. We're seeing other cases where rates are rising and where we need to act fast as we have in Bolton and Blackburn. But we're now also able to use two further tools. Mobility data shows travel patterns in different areas. And we look at this in deciding where the virus is at risk of spreading. And next, we also analyze wastewater in 70% of the country. And we can spot the virus and the variants in the water. And that can help us identify communities where there's spread. As we carefully replace this shield of restrictions with the sword of the vaccination program to give us protection for the long term, we keep driving the vaccination program as fast as we can. So, like, so this is like Boris Johnson, King Lear language, replace the shield of the restrictions with the sword of the vaccination. Uh, uh, 100%, Brilliant. yes. There's quite a lot to unpack there. First of all, uh, again, we've got the double cross. So the two uh, union flags in the background folded in a particular way to make sure you see the double cross. Uh, that's what's going on there. But uh, um, he's talking about a surveillance system. Uh, Patrick, he's very excited about the surveillance system. This whole narrative is bringing a level of surveillance we've never seen before. But did you notice uh, he started talking about case rate? He's not talking about R anymore. What happened to this, the great R number? You go back about a week in the UK column news, and we highlighted a paper from SPYMO saying that when you've got a low prevalence of, of uh, cases, a low prevalence of hospitalizations, a low prevalence of death, i.e. when there's no virus doing the rounds, R becomes an irrelevance. It, in other words, it doesn't work anymore because you can't claim anymore that, that you're at risk because R is over one. Um, so, so you have to quietly decommission that, that and, language. And or, find some other metric to use that can imply, imply threat when which, there is no threat. Which is what he's doing. That's exactly what he's doing. He also talked about going door to door. Um, so we're hearing more and more of, of this kind of thing. Uh, the last uh, one of the recent reports saying that uh, uh, members of the fire brigade going door to door to encourage people to get themselves vaccinated. The mail, the mail called it door to door hit squads to track people down who are vaccine hesitant. Right. And uh, he talked about mobility data. What mobility data? Is this mobile phone tracking? Is this if you've got location services switched on on your, on your uh, Android phone or your iPhone? that they're able to track your, who and who you're associating with. I don't know the answer to that, but if that's what's going on, if he's talking about the, the government having access to mobility data, where does that fit with the Data Protection Act? Is that legal? 
Uh, do we have an answer to that? Is there some statutory uh, ability for them to, to make use of this data in this way? If that's what's going on, we need some answers there. And then finally, the wastewater story. This is quite incredible. If you remember right back to uh, March or April, May last year, I can't remember exactly when, uh, there was a paper came out of the University of Barcelona. It wasn't the only one. There were other papers from other parts of the world uh, suggesting that uh, wastewater analysis uh, from historical samples was uh, suggesting that COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 actually had been doing the rounds for quite a bit longer than the end of 2020. It had been doing the rounds for significantly longer than that. Uh, but that was very much uh, rubbished by the mainstream press and the scientific uh, elites. Uh, they didn't uh, agree with that particular those particular studies. So, uh, but now suddenly we're using water, wastewater analysis to uh, to to, tr to track the, the the variants. So many many inconsistencies I feel in what he said, and certainly lots of questions to be answered. Well, the big question is how how can you know what you're finding is the variant, whether it's in the wastewater, whether it's in the guy down the end of the road in Blackburn. What are they using? What tools are they actually using? Well, if you read the mainstream media reports, Mike, it does sound very impressive. Take a look at this. This is one of the uh, organizations here, the Welcome Sanger Institute. Uh, and this is the COVID-19 genomic surveillance project here. This is the sort of thing that you'll hear about in The Guardian and other mainstream papers here. Very impressive, right? So genomic surveillance. You'd think that there's a special genome scanner, right? That they're pointing around, pointing at the water, pointing at people, and they're finding COVID uh, magically somehow with this great uh, surveillance system, okay? Well, let's just take a closer look here. And if you go and look at, actually look at the peer-reviewed literature on this, we just scanned a couple of uh, reports here. This is Nature Magazine. India's neighbors race to sequence genomes as COVID surges. And they're talking about Sri Lanka and Nepal, scientists are concerned about this Indian variant, right? So they're, how can we see, how can we identify it? How can we sequence it? And when you actually read the fine print, sequencing takes time, it's a timely process. Uh, as a shortcut, her lab uses, wait for it, the polymers chain reaction test, the PCR test. Kits can quickly detect three widely circulating variants of concern. And there they are, the rock stars of, this is the, tri is that the triple-headed mutant? No, that's not the triple-headed mutant, but, okay. but. It might be the South Africa, it might be the sort of, you know, the, the girl band there, the Indian, South African girl band, the Brazilian. Careful. So, so, so look, it's a PCR test, Mike. Yes. Is a PCR test uh, uh, accurate? Is it a diagnostic test? Does it actually match like for like with virus? Answer is no, it doesn't. It has two RNA fragments it uses as markers and then it does a replication process, runs a cycle count up. Do we know the cycle threshold for these tests? Of course, they're not talking about that. Mm. So what are you actually finding there? So you load the factors in the PCR machine, you run the cycle counts up, you decide what you're looking for, and you decide how many cycles you're gonna run up. You can find COVID anywhere. You can find it on the bottom of your shoe, in a chapati, on the bottom of a rickshaw, it doesn't matter. So the PCR test, again, strikes once again, oh, and it gets better. But kits that detect the B1617 variant, Indian. Indian variant, have only just been developed and they cannot identify newly emerging variants. So the, the language is very confusing. So where does that leave uh, Matt Hancock's narrative that they're using uh, testing, surge testing to identify uh, the Indian variant? 
Well, we'll get to that in a minute, but what it appears, Mike, is that the surge testing is really uh, lateral flow tests, PCR tests, and that this genomic surveillance system is really, a lot of it might be, we're not sure there's any scientific or me medical experts out there, a lot of this might be based on the data is being based on PCR testing mm. once again. So again, it's not, uh, they're not getting live, isolating viruses from patients and doing live cultures and then looking at it under electron microscope to see that they've got an actual Indian variant there. That's, we don't believe that's happening considering the number of quote positive cases Matt Hancock just claimed, 2,900. You'd have to do how many thousands of tests to get that result. Mm. And do they have the, the lab uh, in sequencing or whatever? I don't know. We don't know. It's very vague. So anyway, take a look at this. This is just show you how ridiculous this can get. This is like the UK variant accounts for 70%. This is what they're telling the Pakistanis of COVID cases in Pakistan. This is from earlier in May. This just shows you. They're telling you in Pakistan, if you're in Pakistan, it's the UK variant. If you're in the UK, it's the Indian variant. Mm -hmm. So this is the same story all over the country here, and back to Matt Hancock. So again, we'll call this the behavioral insights, nudging, weaponized talking points. You heard it before. We're in a race between the virus and the vaccine. You see how they've binary framed this issue there. So this is behavioral insights and replacing restrictions on freedoms with the protections from the vaccine. And that brilliant line from King Lear, replace the shield of restrictions with the sword of the vaccine program. That's Matt Hancock's strong, and steady language there. I think he's got a future, Mike, in politics. What do you think? I hope not. And then, so back to this. So, but, and here we go with the ambivalence again and the confusion. But new data from the Welcome Sanger Institute's COVID-19 genetic genomic surveillance, which excludes samples from recent travelers and surge testing. It excludes samples from recent travelers and surge testing. Okay. That's a little bit confusing now, has shown how rapidly and widely the variant is appeared to be embedded. So the language completely contradicts itself. They're blinding you with science at every turn on this. And so let's look at what Dr. Vernon Coleman has to say about this, best-selling author, a British medical professional here. My professional guess is that he, Matt Hancock, is assuming any positive test is the Indian variant. Uh, that is politically convenient because the Indian variant is being used to promote the vaccine, particularly in areas where there is vaccine resistance. And Coleman goes on. Uh, they don't know whether the Indian variant is more transmissible or deadly, but they do know the vaccine doesn't stop people from catching it or spreading it. That's an important point yes. right there, which Matt Hancock will never admit. And he finally says here, I cannot see why anyone believes anything Hancock or any of the advisors tell us, based on their history, my assumption is that the government is lying to promote uh, the vaccine there. And I think one That's more- a quite reasonable assumption, I think. Well, yeah, a lot of people might agree with that. And finally here, he says, I think they're using the Indian variant threat to cover up vaccine deaths, to prepare us for more lockdowns and to prepare us for deaths from path pathogenic priming. The failure of the medical profession to ask questions is a huge scandal. That is the scandal. Yes. Sarah. So, but remember all these, these stories here, Mike, about the BAME community, Blacks, uh, Asians, and Middle Eastern people. Patients are hesitant. You remember we've seen 
tons and tons of reporting that, that these communities, minority communities, are more vaccine hesitant. So when Matt Hancock mentioned the areas, Mike, that he was targeting there, Bolton, Blackburn, Hounslow, Bedford, Leicester, these are all Asian-dominated communities. So is the government not using a racial profiling? And we're, we're, we're putting this out as a, as a fair question. Is the government using racial profiling of what they consider racially vaccine-hesitant communities and hitting them with surge testing, surge vaccinations, in order to get the numbers up in those communities? And is this not a dubious... Uh, if, if that is true, and it, it sounds plausible because the evidence seems to point in that direction, then that is a question I think the government needs to answer. So, so I mean, again, Mike, you're going to ask the question, where, where is this hesitancy coming from in the ethnic and minority communities? Is this genuine skepticism? And what is it based on? Well, you only have to look back in history, Mike, and there's lots of examples right back through the eugenics movement and a lot of the horrible things that have been done to people of color and ethnic minorities with regards to medical experimentation. Here's just one example. Take a look at this. By the way, this is from the British Medical Journal's postgraduate medical journal here. Tuskegee, could it happen again? This was a paper that was published uh, not so long ago. And the Tuskegee syphilis study is often paired with the horrific Nazi experiments as prime examples of what happens when powerless subjects the state's coercive power, racism, and medical research are unmoored from ethical concerns. Now, that's there's a lot in that statement, Mike, that I say could apply to the present day, at least of the latter part there. Is there the, the issue of racism? Is this at play? We don't know, and we're not saying, but we are saying that there are ethical problems here, uh, and medical research is unmoored from ethical concerns. Mm. We have pointed that out time and time again. So I think this is worth exploring. And they go on. In the Tuskegee study, over 400 African-American men in, with late-stage syphilis were never told they were in a 40-year-long experiment sponsored by the United States Public Health Service to study untreated syphilis in the male Negro. So this is from the British Medical Journal. So this is a big scandal. A lot of people in America are familiar with this, but maybe not in the UK. So this is something that maybe the British audience might not know about. And they go on here, the men were not directly offered treatment, even though they were told that the aspirins, tonics, and rubs uh, they were given uh, were to help cure bad blood. So they told them they had bad blood, and they gave them a few topical treatments, didn't tell them that they were infected with syphilis and weren't going to help treat them and save their lives. So many died uh, probably from this study as well. So here I flagged this up in red. The government supported physician scientists who ran the study, they went on to greater fame in their careers. Although there was a lawsuit, no one was ever legally punished for what was done. Now think about that in context with what Vernon Coleman is saying and what we've been saying on this program for months and really for the last uh, you know, year really mm -hmm. on these types of issues is that when you have this interest of powerful state interest coming together with the pharmaceutical corporate cartel and is anybody ever going to be held accountable certainly mike a lot of people their careers have shot to fame and their financial fortunes have skyrocketed as a result of this crisis so again history is history repeating itself that's a very good question but of course if you aren't aware of the history it's very very likely to repeat itself uh, in some similar way 
Um, so where does that take us? Well, you know, in terms of the Indian variant, Mike, we just want to say it's not all bad news. Look at this. Woman from Bolton claims the Indian variant has left her too worried to leave her home while stood in the town center. This is from the Daily Mail. So again, uh, but you know, let's go right to the horse's mouth, Mike. Uh, someone from the streets of N N Mumbai, this video is circulating on Twitter, and this is a man from India. It, it, we've been told for weeks, Mike, that India is being ravaged by COVID, that people are dropping dead in the street, that bodies are floating up the Ganges in their hundreds because India is being overcome with COVID-19. I'm sure they're floating down, but anyway, both of them. They're floating down the Ganges. Let's listen to what he has to say. 20th of May 2020, 20th of May 2021, and in Mumbai, we are having just a normal day. It is just past 11 a.m. and most of the shops are open. People are busy buying groceries and stuff. So whatever you are hearing about people dying in the streets in India, if you are still hearing it, it's all a lie. Do not believe all the liars. We are doing fine here. Well, that's pretty clear. Calm as a Hindu cow roaming the streets of Mumbai. Mumbai. Yes. So, brilliant. Um, so and there's a, quite a lot of these firsthand accounts, accounts yeah. from yeah. India, and they're all saying the same thing, saying they can't believe the hysterical media reports, and they can't believe the fact that the Western media is using Indians in order to hype up their own pandemic yes. uh, in their own countries. So this is what they're saying in India. So will all the hype result in mandatory vaccination? Uh, it's been a question that we've been asked for a number of months now. Uh, but let's have a look at the latest from the World Economic Forum. Uh, this is a survey. Um, and uh, well, the question is, will employees be required to get COVID-19 vaccination? So this is uh, University of Arizona has done this study, uh, Patrick, uh, supported by the Rockefeller Foundation and the World Economic Forum. So let's just have a look at... Uh, what they're saying here, companies' policies for employees regarding COVID-19 vaccination, 88% of employers will require or encourage vaccination for employees. Now, what they said very clearly, though, although encouraged, suggests a slightly uh, um, softer approach. Nudging. Uh, the, the, what they were very clear about was, and what they don't have on this particular graphic, is uh, or face the consequences. Now, we'll look at the consequences in one second, but what they're saying is that 40% would require all employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19. 32% would encourage but not require employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19. And 16% would require some employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19, I suppose, if you are uh, on what would be perceived as a frontline uh, role. Um, so let's have a look at what the consequences might be. What are the consequences for lack of compliance with the vaccination uh, programs? 27% uh, would say that they would change your work responsibilities. 31% uh, would say, say that there would be disciplinary action up to and including termination. 15% uh, say there would be no consequences if you refuse to be vaccinated. 44% uh, said you would not be allowed to return to the physical work environment. Uh, and 1% they have categorized as other. Uh, but also in this uh, report, they're not just talking about uh, vaccination and uh, potential mandatory vaccination from employers. Uh, they're also talking about mental health uh, and so uh, they are um, saying that 57.8% of companies uh, have seen increased levels of mental health concerns uh, amongst their employees. 50.6% uh, saying that uh, their employees are showing 
some signs of burnout. 44.3% of companies saying their staff uh, have uh, morale issues uh, and 46.8% saying their staff have increased productivity issues. 51.8% uh, saying their staff have increased engagement issues. So clearly uh, we're seeing the effects of lockdown uh, and the whole propaganda campaign on people's mental health uh, that is uh, shown in, this, in these results. But I think uh, of greater concern is the potential for people to find themselves really stuck between a rock and a hard place by their employees. I think there are many, many lawyers uh, licking their lips at mm. the prospect of, of the litigation that's going to fall out of this. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, of course, these, these statistics uh, from the United States, I think we would see very similar statistics from the UK, uh, but we'll see what happens when, the, when this, the court cases get started. But nowhere in that World Economic Forum report, Mike, did you see any mention of the fact that the vaccine in, in respect to the United States and other countries is unlicensed and is only under an emergency use authorization. Hasn't even been approved by the FDA uh, for in, in a normal sense uh, for use in the United States. So you can't compel or require somebody to accept an experimental pharmaceutical product that is unlicensed and hasn't been approved by the FDA. Because if you do, anything that happens to you, if you get shingles, if you have any adverse reactions, if you happen to even die from it, whatever, even if you get sick, that falls under the workers' response, uh, the, the employer's responsibility mm. legally. So you can sue your employer, uh, deep pockets if you want, as far as you want to go with that. And a number of lawyers in the United States are already preparing for this very sort of wave. So again, this is something that maybe was thought about, maybe wasn't when they rushed this product uh, into and you know get get those jabs into people's arms, as Joe Biden said, mm. uh, as this was as if this was the greatest achievement ever. Uh, in you know in modern times, it, it could be the biggest debacle ever in modern times. By the time it's all said and done, mark our words. Um, so uh, more potential racism at work here, uh, Patrick. But the, we mentioned a little bit of this on on Wednesday's program. But the language is just atrocious. It's appalling. It's appalling. So you saw how uh, it seems like the government is targeting Asians uh, in Asian communities to increase uh, vaccine uptake. Okay, with their you know unlicensed vaccine. Okay, so here this is refuseniks. This is the term that's being used and banding about in the media now. Vaccine refuseniks threaten our freedom. So it's quite a preposterous proposition here, Mike. So Tory MPs warned Boris not to delay unlocking. So they've created a kind of an argument here. And so using the term refuseniks, where does this term come from? And we're we're puzzled by this. So we look, and here it is again. Uh, Boris warned not to let the vaccine refuseniks threaten our freedom amid Indian variant fears that could delay the June 21st unlocking of Britain, right? Mm -hmm. So again, refuseniks. So, and here we go again, vaccine refuseniks. This is from the week. Why the hesitancy here? And look at this. Our wider society should not be held back from recovering our freedoms from those who choose not to protect themselves and others. So, so vaccine is not only to protect yourself now, it's to protect others. And this is straight from uh, Spy B documentation where, you know, the, the, the sense of, of community and, and the risk to, to other members of your community had to be emphasized. So this is Simon Clark, MP from Middlesbrough and South and East Cleveland saying this. So the, a lot of the MPs you'll see their own message, Mike. Yes. They're, they're repeating the talking points straight out of 
the behavioral insights documents, and which is really a psychological uh, operation, social engineering to be more precise. But again, where does this term refuseniks come from? And uh, so we looked in our history books, and here we found refuseniks was an unofficial term for individuals, typically uh, but not exclusively, Soviet Jews who were denied permission to emigrate primarily to Israel by the authorities of the Soviet Union and other countries in the Eastern Bloc behind the Iron Curtain. I pulled that from Wikipedia, actually. Wikipedia is sometimes useful to get generic uh, definitions and things like that, but that reflects the sort of regular literature that you'll find on this. So again, so you have members of the political establishment, the mainstream media, using what is effectively an anti-Semitic term, one could say, uh, which was used to demonize Jews in Soviet Russia, okay, and they're now repurposing it to target, quote, anti-vaxxers. Mm. So again, more sort of racism, more weaponized language. I mean, it's getting really nasty mm. with this. So there's a, this vaccine issue, I mean, I've never seen the government in stitches, uh, tied in knots, trying to basically push this through mm. by hook or crook, getting really vicious. The only thing that's close is when they're trying to wage a war, Mike, when they're trying to get the war going in Iraq or Syria mm. or the temper tantrum that Michael Gove threw on the floor of the House of Commons when David Cameron didn't get the vote on the Syrian war. You remember that? Yes. Um, that sort of thing, that nastiness, that sort of those tantrums, resorting to name calling. This, so we're seeing the same thing now with the vaccine rollout. They're treating it like it's a war. So who's the war against? Is it against COVID? Or is it against somebody else? I think it's against somebody else. Is it against the people? This is the question we're asking here. So it, speaking of unhinged, it gets even better, Mike. Uh, here's Dan Hodges. The, uh, I think he writes for one of those prestigious tabloids, Mike. I don't know. Is it the mail? Could be. Could be the mail. So according to Dan Hodges, anti-vaxxer equals draft dodger. This is an innovative uh, metaphor here. So this is Dan Hodges who's a great pal of Peter Hitchens, to beat COVID, everyone has to do their bit and get their vaccine. The anti-vaxxers want everyone else to do their bit for them because they're too scared to have it. They talk a big game, but they're basically modern equivalent of draft dodgers, says Dan Hodges. They're from one of the great tabloid papers, Mike. So, so there, it, it's funny how the, the twist on this, the draft dodgers were conscientious objectors. Mm. Uh, who were basically uh, objecting to the Vietnam War, which history shows was just one of the most egregious illegal wars uh, waged on a false pretense ever, mm -hmm. okay? So he's repurposing draft dodger from the Vietnam War in America to apply as a pejorative insult and a smear to people who are resisting to take uh, an experimental unlicensed pharmaceutical product, often known as the vaccine. So isn't that an interesting twist? or a sort of transmutation that is attempted there by Dan Hodges. It's unbelievable. These people are just getting completely fanatical. Yes, now. yes. It, it's extreme. Yeah. It is extreme. It's going to get worse. Yes. So. Okay. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and uh, also do share our material on the various platforms uh, as you see fit. Now, the uh, Yellow Card website, which is at yellowcard.ukcolumn.org, uh, has been updated with the latest data and we'll have a new feature out on Monday. So look forward to Monday's program uh, and uh, we'll tell you all about that then. 
but the latest this week's data is now available on the uh, on the yellow card website. Uh, now we've had some communication from the University of Southampton um, and uh, it says this, we've started to notice a number of stickers advertising your company are being fly posted on University of Southampton property. As we operate a zero tolerance policy for fly posting, our campus services team are removing these as soon as they can be seen, as soon as they're seen therefore, can you kindly advise any of your agents who may be responsible <laughs> for putting these up that their time and effort are being wasted? Thank you. Now, I wrote back to the uh, gentleman concerned, who I think is the uh, head bin man at uh, uh, University of Southampton. Uh, I wrote back to him and said, well, look, we don't make uh, stickers available for anybody. We don't make any artwork for stickers available for anybody. This has really got nothing to do with us. Uh, and I don't really know what, what he thinks we can do about it. Uh, but he wrote back uh, straight away. This was uh, two or three weeks ago saying, I suppose you could interpret this as meaning you have inspired your audience. Well, I'm going to make it clear we do not uh, approve of this kind of scandalous behavior. Absolutely uh, not. This is, uh, this is, we don't want you to go out and put, we don't want you to make your own stickers and go and distribute them and put them out like, like Black Lives Matter do, for instance. Well, exactly. We are just advising absolutely, totally against it. Aren't we against that, Mike? We're completely against, We're it. against so, it. So anyway, the reason that this is a couple of weeks old, but the reason I uh, am bringing this up is because he sent me another email yesterday afternoon uh, with these two pictures on it. Uh, showing more stickers. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. Look at the quality of the artwork on that. It is repulsive. Who made these? This is not up to standard. We don't have, but we don't have standards. We we don't endorse this at all. We we reject it, don't we? We absolutely reject it. So so please uh, stop doing it immediately, and uh, particularly at the University of Southampton because they they don't like it. Don't do it there, especially there. Yeah, especially there. Anyway, uh, let's uh, come back then to the G7 and uh, the health minister's meeting is taking place in a couple of weeks time. Um, and it's going to be hosted at Oxford University, of course, the hub of clinical and medical expertise. Um, so they're hosting the G7 health minister's meeting. Um, it's going to be a face to face meeting, not a virtual meeting. Um, and uh, it's going to, uh, they represent, they say, a unique opportunity to demonstrate the commitment of the world's major economies to protecting lives across the world from current and future global health threats. And attendees are going to come together to address the issues of global health security, antimicrobial resistance, clinical trials, and clinical trials are at the center of everybody's minds, and digital health, uh, of course, because it's the tracking and the surveillance, which is really particularly important. Um, so uh, looking forward to seeing that. Now, let's just briefly get onto the issue of... Where did they get this photo, Mike, of the good weather in Cornwall? I think it. I think it's a, a particular... Uh, it's been... Uh, Photoshopped? I was trying to try to avoid using the verb, but yes... That, we have that not is, seen sunlight in how many months? Well, this is it. So Anyway, we hope for good weather for the G7, especially because Biden's coming and he needs the fresh air and the sunlight. He does. At his age. He does. But anyway, on the issue of this question of where is the pandemic? This is the question that we're asking in this next segment. Where is the evidence for a pandemic? Because I can't find any. Um, so first of all, let's just have a look at the Office for National Statistics here. Um, so they are uh, they publish every week the latest all-cause mortality statistics. And we've made use of these statistics over the last year because uh, in terms of the actual uh, you know, respective numbers of the number of people that have passed away each week, uh, they are the source for that. But they, the comparison is always made between uh, the number of people that have died in any, in any week and the five-year average. So the question is, how does that five-year average get calculated? 
So this is a freedom of information answer. The question, the, if you want to search for the freedom of, freedom of information request, it's uh, entitled figures for deaths occurring in England only including non-residents and methodo methodology on how the five-year average is calculated. And they stay in their answer. The five-year average number of weekly deaths are calculated by adding together the deaths from each week over the specified five-year period and dividing by five to get the average. Now that should seem very obvious, but that I just simple, want to, simple. simple, I just want to make it clear that that's what the ONS says. So here is uh, the typical graph. This is the latest one uh, for the number of deaths registered uh, in England and Wales. Um, and you can see the, uh, the peak from April, May last year, and you can see the peak from say October uh, through to February this year or March this year. And you can see that in each of those cases, the, it was well above the five-year average. Mm -hmm. Now, first point to make here is that it will appear to be above, certainly for the 2020 uh, peak, it will appear to be above the five-year average because actually the five-year average for the previous five years was at its lowest level in history. Um, so that five-year average was very low. And this is why you will see many, many people talking about this concept of dry tinder, which I think is the most horrible uh, term, but this uh, is a word that, or a term that's used for people that probably in a normal year wouldn't have survived, but because there was a, a particularly low prevalence of respiratory illnesses in particular in the previous couple of years, uh, they were set up to die in the, the next winter flu season because uh, because of that, they had an easier time in the previous couple of years. Yeah, right? Epidemiologists use that term yes. quite frequently. And, and yeah. it's, it's horrible, but anyway. So the, the fact that the, that the uh, five-year average is relatively low in 2020 means that that uh, excess mortality appears to be bigger than perhaps it might have done in other periods of time. Um, but then we come to the 2021 situation. And uh, what is the situation there? Well, actually, if we look at the numbers for the five-year average that the Office for National Statistics are given, giving on the latest spreadsheet, we find that in each uh, week from week one to week 18, because they only have the numbers up to week 18 of 2021, that the numbers are identical between 2020 and 2021. And I am asking, how is this possible? Because the five-year average is the average of the numbers of deaths in any week in the previous five years. So it must be a mistake. It's not a mistake. It's, uh, it's, uh, it can't be a mistake. This is the Office for National Statistics that we're talking about. They don't make mistakes. They publish the data that they intend to publish. Mm -hmm. So if the five-year average figures for 2021 are identical to those of 2020, then in my view, they have intentionally taken the decision uh, to make the comparison for, for mortality in 2021 um, against the same numbers that they used in 2020. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, of course, uh, towards the end of the, uh, you know, if we look at this particular section here, Part of those figures, and most of those figures, most of that peak uh, of excess mortality is being compared against that relatively low five-year average, and so the excess mortality looks worse. Come the winter at October, November, December time this year, when we start seeing excess mortality again, as we do every year, more or less, um, we're going to see, again, if they maintain this methodology for their uh, five-year average, which appears to have changed to become the same methodology as last year, i.e. they use exactly the same figures as last year, again, we're going to see what appears to be higher excess mortality numbers. This seems like to me like a manipulation of the statistics to make the situation appear worse. 
So what is the situation actually with respect to mortality? Well, look, we've got to say thank you to Nick Milner because he's done this work. This is on what on the What Do They Know website. Uh, and he has asked a whole uh, range of uh, local authorities for details of the number of burials and cremations that happened in 2020 and 2021. Um, so let's just take some examples here. Uh, Leeds City Council's response. Uh, sorry, I do apologize. This is actually from 2015 to 2020. So each year from 2015 to 2020. And if we look at Leeds City Council's response, we find that uh, in terms of cremations from 2015, 5,876, 2016, 5,704, 2017, 5,888, 2018, 5,955, 2019, 5,861, and 2020, 6,016. And, the same, and in fact, in terms of burials, there were 200 fewer burials in 2020 than there were in 2015. Mm. Where is the pandemic? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, let's look at another one. Uh, this is for Wolverhampton uh, City Council. Cremations in 2015, 2,674. In 2020, 2,575. Burials, 2,015, 726. 2,020, 783. Where is the pandemic? It's not there. It doesn't exist because there's no excess mortality here. If we look at, uh, uh, this is Scarborough, a similar picture again. The numbers are more or less identical year on year. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, we can see that, there, that, that uh, if there's maybe uh, 50 more people in a particular uh, local authority area, that that might add up to a couple of hundred or three or four hundred more people in the, in, nationally. But, but hardly a national crisis. This is not a national crisis. This is, there was no justification for the lockdown, therefore. There's no justification for a global vaccination rollout, certainly, and no justification for a UK-wide vaccination rollout. There's no justification for the bombardment of propaganda in the press, no justification for the calling of the name-calling, calling people refuseniks, and so on because the bodies aren't there. I'm sorry to put it in those terms, but this is really the only statistic that can't be um, manipulated in some way. Uh, because if, if there is no excess mortality, if there, is, if there are no extra people dying. And this ties perfectly with another data point which you brought up on this program previously. What is the average sort of age of uh, COVID death yes. in this country? Yes. It's about 82 years old, right? I, I can't remember. Right the around there. So, yes. It's, and, it's, and, and then sort of the mean or the average age of, of lifespan is around uh, 80, yes. right? So it COVID-19, if you believe the official numbers, it tracks very perfectly with average lifespans. And so there's nothing unusual there. In fact, you live a little bit longer, apparently, according to the stats, if you believe them, uh, if you have COVID, okay, which is a ridiculous proposition, but it's just to show the farce of it, okay? Yes. It tracks with average lifespan. So nothing unusual is happening. This is in the elderly with multiple chronic health conditions. These are the people who tend to get sick and die over 80 with multiple comorbidities. I mean, this is not a mystery, uh, but this is the same story we're seeing in the United States, in Europe, in the UK, basically all around the world. It's the same story. So it never, ever was a threat to the general population and my goodness, never for children in schools. Yes. 
or anything or anybody really, if you look at the numbers under the age of, let's say, be generous, let's say under the age of 70, okay? That's the facts. That's what the data shows. And yet we have all of these rules, regulations, mitigation measures, shut the economy down to quote, save the NHS, when the NHS was never really in any threat of ever being overrun. And we saw the same thing in Italy as well. When they've audited the numbers, yeah. they found that there was, the crisis was happening in the media. And it turns out the amount of people that were shoved on the ventilators, which is effectively a death sentence for many people, elderly, frail people shoved on ventilators, thousands of them, guess what happened? They died in New York, in Bergamo, in Spain, in the UK as well. Early on, there was a problem with this. So I've just thrown you three, the results from three, shown you the results from three local authorities there. Go and find that uh, uh, freedom of information request uh, on the uh, whatdotheyknow.com website and look at the rest. They're all very similar. Uh, I've also seen some from statistics from Cornwall Council, which are very similar again. Um, we've got a... And, and fantastic work from our, our viewers at the UK Column for engaging in the FOIA request, the Freedom of Information request. And Mike, and just to remind everybody, it is the quality of the question which you ask. Yes. Which makes all of the difference in the world and allows you to get the yes or the no answer that you were looking for. So uh, come on, full fact, deal with that one. Now, let's uh, come on to this. Well, this is a story that's making the rounds here. Uh, this is in the French uh, media here. Let's just do a quick uh, translation there. This is Professor Luc uh, Montagnier. Uh, the variants are coming from the vaccines, says the Nobel Prize winner here. Professor Luc Montagnier, epidemiologists know but are silent about the phenomenon known as antibody-dependent enhancement, ADE, aka also known as pathogenic priming. You've discussed this on the program previously. So there's more here from Dr. Montagnier. Just to review, to let people know, antibody-dependent enhancement, ADE, and vaccines. What does this mean? This is from the Children's Hospital uh, in Philadelphia here, and this is their definition uh, with regards to ADE. What is ADE? Well, in, in short, ADE occurs when the antibodies generated during an immune response from a vaccine recognize and bind to a pathogen, but they're unable to prevent infection. Instead, these antibodies act as a Trojan horse, allowing the pathogen to get into cells and exacerbate the immune response. That in a nutshell, Mike, that's one definition or one description of the phenomenon known as uh, antibody-dependent enhancement or pathogenic priming. And this is what a lot of the experts, including Dr. Uh, Montagnier is warning about here. Let's look at what he has to say about this here. The new variants are created by the selection of antibodies produced by the COVID-19 vaccine. He's coming out here, Mike, former Nobel Prize winner, discovered AIDS, etc. He's saying that the vaccines are causing the variants. So this is definitely worth investigation here. And he goes on to say, this is a huge mistake. It's a scientific error and inexplicable inexplicable medical fault. History will take stock one day of all this because it is indeed the vaccination that created the variant here. So certainly uh, this does kind of reflect what the concerns of Dr. Gert Vandenbosch were that we talked about in previous programs, that this, this idea of vaccinating during a pandemic, which is 
unprecedented, rolling out mass vaccinations. And here they're wanting to vaccinate the world, as you showed. Uh, so this comes with some consequences potentially. And these are things that need to be investigated, but nobody is talking about them in government and in the pharmaceutical industry for obvious reasons. And uh, so I've got a question for, for you, Patrick. Is the whole gain-of-function Chinese lab narrative that's being pumped through certain media channels, including Fox in the US, is that designed to take the heat off this issue? Um, I, I think it's a massive, personally, I think it's a massive distraction. It's not just designed to take the heat off this issue. I think it's designed to take the heat off of the the perception of the global pandemic full stop. Yes. The fraud of PCR testing that's been used to actually create uh, the data for cases and COVID deaths with COVID globally that has given us every single one of these policies. Mm. And also the fact that the myth of the asymptomatic spread, and I say myth because all the scientific literature that we've looked at, that we've shown on this program, has said that there is no asymptomatic spread of COVID. Multiple uh, peer-reviewed scientific papers. So this isn't just us making it up. Go look in Nature Magazine, Science Direct. There's a bevy mm. of studies, okay, that say that asymptomatic spreading doesn't isn't actually a thing, isn't happening. And that's why you have masks. This is why you have a mass vaccination. This is why the schools are being shut, the business are being shut, vaccine passports. It's all predicated on the idea or the theory uh, of the asymptomatic super spreader, mm. okay? So yet the science doesn't support this. Why are we not rolling everything back? Why? Because we don't have any science that's showing us that this is in fact the case. It was all done on a shotgun right uh, last 14 months ago and everyone just ran with it. Uh, surfaces, you can catch COVID from the money, um, spray that with sanitizer. Oh my gosh, a mouse, what are we gonna do? You know, so, I mean, this is all falling by the wayside. So the Chinese virus story is a great distraction to get people to refocus on some mutant, super duper, you know, uh, juiced up, as Rand Paul called it, juiced up super virus mm. that escaped out of a Chinese lab. So we can, you know, nail the Chinese and also nail Fauci. Everybody wants to nail Fauci. So the fact that he's attached to that story is just like, you know, red meat on the table yeah. for a lot of people. So I can see this is the perfect story. Yeah. The Chinese Wuhan escape story is actually perfect. But we know if it was such a deadly virus, Mike, why did they have to invent all of the PCR data to create all of these so-called cases that aren't actual cases and all these so-called infections that aren't actual infections? Okay, let's uh, move on then to the Middle East. And uh, well, a ceasefire has been done. It has, and this is big news. Uh, so what's been happening in Gaza and Israel, which you have n no doubt seen in the news of late uh, this last week, a ceasefire has been called and seems to have been observed by both sides, Israel and the Palestinians here. Biden is taking credit for it. He's ha hailing this as a genuine opportunity to make progress uh, between the Palestinians and the Gazans. We'll see what the fallout is for Biden and the Democrats for crossing the Israeli lobby on this. But uh, well, is, it, is, is Biden claiming that this is a direct result of his effectively threat to Israel to, to, to wind their necks in? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. He is. So who knows? Maybe Joe did something useful here. Time will tell exactly what the real story is here. So a ceasefire has been called. It's being observed so far. So far. This could change in a couple of days. Bibi Netanyahu is absolutely 
uh, volatile mm -hmm. as, a, as a leader, and he is also under the gun. He's under threat from uh, scandal, corruption scandals from the hard, uh, the, the fascist hard right in Israel. They want him to basically flatten Gaza and turn it into a glass crater and build settlements on top of it, okay? Mm -hmm. So th th this could change. But take a look at this. Here's Biden. He's hailing it as a genuine opportunity to make progress. And why has this happened? Why is, has the White House done the unthinkable and crossed the Israeli lobby? We'll take a look. Maybe it has something to do with this, Mike, the Israeli-Gaza uh, issue here, the Democrats' tectonic shift on the conflict. Why? It's because of the squad. This is Ilhan Omar, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Rashida Tlaib, otherwise known as the squad. They have put their foot down. This is the woke, radical left wing of the Democratic Party, the Green New Dealers, uh, the BLMers, everything. They have told Biden that you better move on this, otherwise we're going to smash the party to pieces. And they will, and they can. Uh -huh. So these three have a tremendous amount of power in the United States. And this has thrown the Israeli lobby into absolute turmoil. They do not know what to do. Because they, these three, for all of their faults, have marshaled a huge, huge social media and political following. Mm -hmm. So it is a type of a populism of the left-wing variety, a la Bernie Sanders. And they've Bernie Sanders has called for an export arms ban on Israel. You would have never seen this in the past. Mm -hmm. And not, not since before Ronald, you know, before Ronald Reagan, maybe. But since the Reagan administration, the US and Israel have really become joined at the hip. Yes. Because of the Christian right, and they brought in uh, the evangelicals, and this became a really solid political block. Now it's basically completely fractured because the Democrats have gone, quote, off the reservation, no pun intended. Uh, no disrespect intended. Mm. But if you want the inside scoop on this, we actually covered it on a Sunday, on the Sunday Wire radio show here. This is our podcast and radio at 21st Century Wire. Robert Inlakesh, who is just fresh off the ground uh, from Gaza, from Palestine. We broke down the political internal workings of both U.S. politics, Israeli politics, and also Palestinian politics as well. That explains why, why you're seeing what you're seeing and how this came to start in the beginning. Okay, thank you for that, Patrick. Right, uh, let's, uh, uh, other news, defense news now. And uh, well, the carrier group, there it is, has set sail. Uh, this is HMS Queen Elizabeth, of course, and, and others. Um, and, uh, but what's really spectacular about this is we now have uh, an image of the two carriers in the same place at the same time. So uh, here is uh, Queen Elizabeth on the left and Prince of Wales on the right. Queen Elizabeth does have some aircraft on it, as you can see, some F-35, 17 of them, in fact. But the other doesn't. No, because what? the Prince of Wales hasn't received its, its, uh, its quota yet. I've got an idea. Why don't they take off from that aircraft carrier and then land on the other? Or what do you think? Just well, to give them something to do. They could, have, they could have done that for the photograph, at least, but they didn't. What's and the crew doing on the other one? Well, they're going back to Southampton. Uh, uh, sorry, Portsmouth. Sorry, they're going back to just, uh, Portsmouth. Just a little excursion, um, like a day tour. And uh, so, but anyway, th th this uh, is because the Queen Elizabeth and uh, her carrier group ships are off to take part, uh, or uh, in uh, in the, this, sorry, this global um, tour that they're doing. Oh, really? Um, and of course, that's going to take them to Japan eventually. Uh, they're going to sail around the South, South China Sea a little bit. Flex a little they're muscle. Going, they're going to India as well. 
Um, and uh, but they've been involved in uh, Exercise Strike Warrior Twenty One, uh, which apparently has uh, has seen the F thirty fives used extremely successfully to shoot down a couple of uh, drones. Who are they going to be fighting? Are they going to fight the Indian variant? No, they're they're not. Well, no, that's a good, that's a good question. They may be bringing the Indian variant back to India. Uh, I'm not okay. sure, but uh, this is being pursued as sort of a soft a soft power exercise here. So public relations, public relations, and lots of whining and dining going on. Cocktail canapes. Um, uh, but as I say, they're also going to take the opportunity to sail up and down the South China Sea a little bit and sort of threaten the Chinese. I'm sure they'll be quaking in their boots. I'm sure the Chinese are really really worried about this. Uh, and yes, and finally, I just want to end on this uh, because uh, so desperate is the uh, British establishment to change the relationship between the individual and the state and how we're governed and so on that they're rolling out award-winning Wolf Hall author Dame Hilary Mantel uh, to tell us that we need a written constitution. We need to abandon uh, twelve hundred years of history uh, and uh, and uh, good governance for for most of it. It's been pretty bad in the last 150 years or so, but uh, that's not the fault of the Constitution. That's the fault of, of us as people and allowing our politicians to get away with what they're getting away with. Uh, but she is apparently now the, uh, the world's greatest uh, British constitutional expert, and uh, we should listen to her. So she wants those rights down on paper, right? She certainly does, uh, because, of course, once they're down on paper, paper, you can come along with a big eraser and start removing them again. Yeah, or suspend it. Or suspend it. If anybody wants to know what the uh, British Constitution is about, um, we have a series of podcasts on the Constitution section of the UK column website, A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution. Do listen to it. Uh, we've set the foundations in place for the actual dissident part of that, which is coming very soon. But probably the best episode of them all is the one in the top left hand there, episode five, part two, because this is the key. Uh, the understanding that polit political parties, sorry, I didn't have that on screen. There we go. Uh, political parties are the problem. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we explain why political parties are the problem. Uh, we've got to get rid of this idea of political parties and the idea of having um, ministers of state in the House of Commons. This is not how the Constitution is supposed to work. And you do not uh, say, well, the Constitution is not working, so we need to throw it out and replace it. The Constitution is not working because. Uh, the Constitution has been effectively set aside at this point, and government ministers and MPs are doing something different. We need to reassert the Constitution that we have because it actually works. But yeah. anyway. No, and yeah, yeah. The, 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 the real intention of it, the real design of it, has been usurped in recent years. Yes. 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 So, look, we've got to leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual, on Monday. We hope to see you then. Have a great weekend. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.